The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Hello, it's the Art Newspaper Podcast with me, Ben Luke, and this week we're focusing on two very different aspects of museums, the ethics of funding and visitor figures. Later in the podcast, we'll hear from Max Hollein, the director of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, about the top two exhibitions in the Art Newspaper's annual attendance survey, both of them at the Met. We'll also drill down into the numbers and identify the big stories from this year's research. But first, museums and funding from the Sackler family. On the 19th of March, London's National Portrait Gallery and the Sackler Trust announced that they decided to not proceed with a proposed grant of £1 million to the museum. This was in the wake of a growing controversy over the damaging impact of OxyContin, an opioid drug produced by the family's pharmaceutical company, Purdue Pharma. In the days afterwards, the Tate announced that it would not seek or accept Sackler donations, and the Guggenheim in New York announced that it does not plan to accept any gifts from the Sacklers. And last week, the Sackler Trust announced that it would halt all new giving for the time being. In the current print edition of the art newspaper, meanwhile, our front page features the exclusive revelation that a much smaller institution, the South London Gallery, returned a Sackler grant of £125,000 last year. We invited a representative of the Sackler Trust onto the podcast, but they declined and referred us to previous statements on the issue. Those statements say that Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family have denied any wrongdoing. In respect of the opioid crisis, they point out that OxyContin makes up only a small percentage of the overall opioid prescriptions in the US and that it is an approved prescription drug with a high potential for abuse that has always been recognised. But in the studio with me now is Martin Bailey, our London correspondent who broke the South London Gallery story. Martin, before we go into greater detail, I wonder if you might just sort of set the scene for us. What, what is this issue about? Uh, well, it's raised an interesting question about sponsorship um, that museums are accepting and donations. And um, it's a particularly complicated case because it's one that's evolved over the last few years. But it's become apparent that the medicine, the, the pharmaceutical products made by the Sackler Company have been very damaging and uh, the Sacklers have been one of the major, um, one of the very largest um, donors to museums and galleries in the UK and indeed in the US and elsewhere. That's right. And the, the particular uh, medicine that we're talking about is, is a medicine called OxyContin. Particular attention has been drawn to this by the artist Nan Goldin, who has actually done a lot of activism around it and has sort of harnessed a lot of the kind of concerns that were being expressed about opioids in the States and particularly targeted the Sacklers. Yes. And indeed, um, Nan Goldin had actually taken the, the drug herself. So she's speaking from a very personal point of view. Um, OxyContin was a drug that was developed um, as a painkiller. But um, it's it's addictive and it's had very damaging health implications. And it's recently become a, uh, clear that huge numbers of people are dying as a result of addiction. Um, so this is the problem. And the drug is uh, was developed and is manufactured by a company um, called Purdue Pharma. And they're continuing to market it. And that is why there's been opposition um, from medical groups and from artists also in America and that's put pressure on museums and galleries, which have accepted substantial donations from the Sackler family. OK, so it seems like in the last few weeks, a dam has broken in terms of the museum reaction to this issue in the sense that, for instance, the Guggenheim in New York uh, has said, and I quote, that it, the, that it does not plan to accept any gifts from the Sacklers. What's happened in the UK? 
Yes, I mean, there's been a, a major change. I mean, behind the scenes, the South London Gallery, which is a small but important gallery um, in, in South London, um, re- decided to actually return some Sackler money. This was not publicised at the time, but we broke the story in the That's right, you've done some digging and found out all about it. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and I think that actually had quite a major impact because once one of the small boys had returned the money, it made it much more difficult for the big boy, the National Portrait Gallery, to accept it. What do, you, what do you mean by that? Well, I think it would have been embarrassing for the National Portrait Gallery to accept, have accepted the money when a small regional gallery or, or, or um, suburban gallery, if you like, had actually taken the initiative to return the money. It was already in their bank account. So that is something very substantial. And I suspect that the National Portrait Gallery realised that if news came out uh, that this other gallery had returned the money, it would put them in a more embarrassing situation. But I do want to stress that the National Portrait Gallery had been considering this issue very seriously and uh, they'd taken the uh, unusual step of setting up a specific ethics committee, which was reporting to the trustees. And the first purpose of this committee was to examine the Sackler donation and consider whether the money should be accepted. And the Sackler Trust had offered a grant of £1 million towards the Portrait Gallery's development project. So it was a very significant grant. And um, I think the director of the gallery realised that um, he had to make, they had to make the right decision on this one. That's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, let's talk about the way it was communicated. It was very much expressed in the statement made by the Sackler Trust and by uh, the National Portrait Gallery itself that this was a de- decision uh, that, that was made by the Sacklers, not by the National Portrait Gallery. The Sackler Trust decided that the proper way of putting it would be that they had decided to withdraw the grant or not proceed with the grant, to be more precise, rather than it being turned down or rejected by the Portrait Gallery. But, of course, there were close discussions between the um, two organisations. And fair enough, um, the Sackler Trust had offered the money and it was up to them to decide how they wanted it to be presented and worded. Can you give us an idea of the scope of Sackler funding in British museums? Because it really is extensive, isn't it? Yes. I mean, there's so many. If you're a visitor going to a museum in London, I mean, so often you'll find something named after the Sacklers. So if you go to the um, National Gallery in Trafalgar Square, there's the Sackler Room with the um, name sort of in gold or whatever at the top of the uh, the top of the walls. Um, there's the Sackler Escalators at Tate Modern. Um, and um, um, there's a Sackler director um, at the Dulwich Picture Gallery. There's, there's hardly... the, the, the recent V&A extension. Exactly. The Serpentine Sackler Gallery, which is a yeah. whole gallery with, with the name Sackler right on the front of it. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, there are so many named in parts of buildings or institutions. And it's quite interesting that they requested that the name be uh, put on the building or um, uh, the, the courtyard or the escalators or whatever. I mean, some donors are very secretive and don't even want their name mentioned. Others want their name in lights. And the Sacklers, and that's entirely their decision, had decided they wanted their name in lights. And, I mean, looking towards the future it's actually going to be quite a dilemma for the museums and galleries what to do with these names on their walls because it doesn't look very good. 
And the I suspect that gradually, you know, when the rooms are redecorated and they're putting a coat of paint on the walls, uh, we'll suddenly see that the Sackler name may disappear uh, under some new paint. But I suspect that will take place over months and years. And that's a decision primarily for the museums to make, uh, but uh, they'll probably also have to consult with Sackler Trust. Um, and uh, uh, there are two uh, UK charities which are involved with the Sacklers. How, do, how does an ethics committee at the, at the National Portrait Gallery relate to the trustees of the institution? Because this, it seems to me, is quite an interesting development. Normally, a decision of this magnitude would be made at board level. But the, this, this, desire, this desire to form an ethics committee, it seems to me, has sort of created a, a body within the museum, which, which it seems to me might be quite unprecedented. Well, it, it is unusual. I think Tate um, have a, an ethics committee. Um, you ask um, a very valid question about how the ethics committee at the National Portrait Gallery has worked. And the answer is we don't really know because um, the arrangements are secret. We don't even uh, know who's on the, on we, the committee. We do don't we? know. I mean, the art newspaper asked the names of the three um, people who sat on the committee and uh, we were told that was private information. I understand that two of them are trustees and one is an outsider. And I've no idea which trustees there were, although um, there is a logic to the chairman of the trustees um, being involved in such an important and sensitive matter, but we don't know. As a public body, are they not obliged to tell us who's on boards and committees? Um, I don't think they are necessarily. I mean, theoretically, one could put in a freedom of information application uh, and see, and then you'd hear in a couple of months' time. Um, But uh, we don't know. Okay, so... Uh, after the National Portrait Gallery, or rather after the Sacklers and the National Portrait Gallery announced their decision, the Tate came up with a statement. And I think this this really deepened the game, didn't it? Because the fact that not only had the National Portrait Gallery and the Sacklers issued a statement saying that a grant was no longer happening, the fact that the Tate issued a statement saying that they were not going to consider Sackler gifts... Is a, is a different kind of statement and a different kind of commitment. No, this was very important. And I think the Tate is probably the only gallery that's made such an announcement in the last couple of weeks. What they actually said was, in the present circumstances, we do not think it right to seek or accept further donations from the Sacklers. So that's put it clearly on the record. And I think there'll be quite a lot of pressure on other galleries to follow that lead and to take that position. And it is only common sense. I mean, can you imagine the controversy that will be stirred up if Tate or the National Gallery or whatever now accepted um, further money from the Sacklers? You know, it would lead to negative uh, press publicity. Um, It would anger some members and visitors to the museums and galleries. And it might actually discourage other donors. I mean, if you were a donor you might not actually want to be part of a, of, of a project um, with the Sacklers at, at this particular moment in time. So I think, yes, Tate has stuck out its neck and other galleries are likely to follow suit. We should say that all of these developments are very much fast moving, aren't they? Because, like, for instance, in 2017, we did a report which followed up on a big piece in The New Yorker, which kind of set the scene for all this debate about opioids. Um, and in that piece... Uh, Christina Ruiz, our correspondent, uh, asked lots of museums for comment and they refused to comment about what they were going to do about funding from uh, the Sackler family. Um, What do you think has happened to shift 
the dynamics? Well, I think in the run-up to the NPG announcement, um, UK museums and galleries were very reluctant to say anything. We did approach them for comments and got nothing really substantial. Um, They really wanted the NPG to make their announcement. Now that the NPG the Portrait Gallery has made the announcement and has cut its links uh, with Sackler. It's now much more open, and I think um, museums and galleries are now going to have to consider very seriously what to do next. And there'll be pressure on them in several ways. First of all, I think it's almost impossible that any museums and galleries will accept further Sackler money, and indeed the Sackler Trust has issued a statement to say that for the meantime, um, it stopped giving grants. Going back to Nan Goldin, one of the big stories that came out of all this was that Nan Goldin had been offered a show at the National Portrait Gallery and had indicated that she would decline to proceed with that show if they accepted the Sackler grant. I think that was one of the reasons for the um, Portrait Gallery decision. It certainly wasn't the only one, and it may not have been the most important, but they had offered um, uh, an important retrospective to Nan Goldin, and that would have been when the new building, when the building reopens after um, the complete renovation. And, of course, that's the reason why they needed the Sackler money to start with. Um, so there was uh, Nan Goldin, uh, who had this... Uh, who had herself suffered from these drugs, took a strong position and spoke out publicly against it. And uh, she privately told the Portrait Gallery last autumn that she would not proceed with the exhibition. And then a few weeks ago, she said it publicly. Um, So I think that was one of the pressures on the Portrait Gallery. It needs to maintain its reputation. And um, if an important artist withdraws from an exhibition over an issue like this, um, it is very damaging to the Portrait Gallery's reputation. And uh, they were well aware uh, of of the threat. So I think that was an important factor behind their decision. Of course, this brings up all sorts of uh, related concerns about ethics in terms of museum funding. Um, There's there's a story in the current issue, print edition of the art newspaper, about tobacco sponsorship, isn't there? That that the British Museum in London continues to accept money from tobacco. Yes. I mean, tobacco surely is a much greater danger to health. I mean, in the UK, uh, the official figures show that it kills uh, roughly 100,000 people a year. And uh, the danger from the Sackler drugs um, is not on the scale it is in the United States. And it kills very, very fewer people here in the UK. And I find it surprising that there has been so little attention paid to tobacco sponsorship. Uh, the report we ran in the art newspaper was that the British Museum uh, was accepting money from JTI. Now, we may not all know what JTI stands for, but it's the Japan Tobacco International. Um, they received um, backing from JTI. And uh, also the Royal Academy has been receiving tobacco money. Now, the Royal Academy is in a slightly different position. It's an independent organization with no government funding, and it's a charity. So it's much more dependent on outside uh, uh, sources of sponsorship and donations. But it is interesting the British Museum is accepting the money. And we also um, published a previously um, secret document, which was the Tate trustees' decision um, 25 years ago um, on sponsorship. And they listed various categories of firms that they would not accept money from. And the first was tobacco companies. Um, They also said at that time they were not 
accepting money from uh, companies with substantial interests in South Africa, in the apartheid regime, or in arms companies. But tobacco was the first. So it's interesting that Tate uh, banned it a quarter of a century ago, and the British Museum is still accepting tobacco money. And of course, Tate and the British Museum are both British government-funded museums, and they're rather um, similar. And indeed, they're the two most visited museums in the UK. And this is all within the context of a climate in which public funding in the UK has, in the era of austerity, fallen, and uh, galleries and museums are being encouraged more and more to to develop rev- revenue streams from other sources. Do you think the whole issue damages museums' ability to raise funds? Or do you, I mean, you indicated earlier on that actually taking eth- ethical positions could be a positive step in that direction. Well, I think museums are in a difficult situation and uh, in the, the, the government grants are going down in real terms. Uh, their expenditure and their ambitions are, are growing. Um, so they need to make up the money either from commercial activities or from donations and sponsorships. And uh, it's very easy to be uh, too sort of dogmatic about uh, what one should or shouldn't accept. And, of course, the grey areas in between. Um, But um, I think on health issues, uh, museums should be very, very careful. And it's not only um, an ethical issue, but from the museums, they also must consider their reputations. And it's not very good for a museum um, to be seen as accepting financial donations or support from organisations or companies that um, are selling dangerous drugs. Martin, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. You can read more about the Sackler story and the ethics of museum funding in the April issue of The Art Newspaper, which is out now. And of course you can find articles online at theartnewspaper.com. We'll be back talking visitor figures after this. The Californian painter Selden Guile believed in combining great art with good company. Guile was the driving force behind a group of colourist artists known as the Society of Six. He set the group's aesthetic direction and inspired its members, many of whom shared his house, with the force of his personality and warm hospitality. The aim of their work was to convey spontaneity and their objective was to communicate joy. Giles Quiet Cove Belvedere that leads Bonham's California and Western Paintings and Sculpture Sale, held in Los Angeles on the 16th of April, is a perfect example of the group's approach. It is, in the words of Bonham's Director of California and Western Paintings, Scott Levitt, a dazzling embodiment of Giles' mastery of colour and texture. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Welcome back. Now, the April issue of the art newspaper always comes with our annual attendance survey, an exhaustive list of visitor figures at museums and galleries across the world. In a few moments, we'll explore some of the big numbers of this year's survey. But the most notable statistic is that the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York has captured the top two spots in the world's most popular exhibitions of 2018. Heavenly Bodies, Fashion and the Catholic Imagination, which featured haute couture inspired by Roman Catholic religious imagery, along with papal robes from the Sistine Chapel sacristy, received around 10,900 visitors a day. And the museum's Michelangelo show, which had more than 200 works, drew 7,900 visitors a day. Our senior editor in New York, Nancy Kenny, went to the Met to talk to Max Holline, the museum's director, about those extraordinary figures. The visitor count for Heavenly Bodies was the highest since the Met put on its King Touch show in 1978, and the galleries were mobbed. Can you explain the show's popularity? 
For us, it was a great moment, of course, of celebration of a particular exhibition, but actually also how an exhibition, a theme, can inhabit an entire building. So I think that the audience really reflected um, very positively, first of all, on the subject, on a, on a thematic approach towards, towards a costume exhibition, something that really also hit a certain nerve. But it was also the opportunity of uh, exploring uh, the the Met as a building and its different collections, including Met Cloisters, actually, uh, through an exhibition. Um, so it was, to a certain way, the Costume Institute show on Heavenly Bodies was also a conduit of understanding the Met as a whole and all its different uh, diverse offerings. Well, you mentioned the cloisters. The show was held at both the main museum and the cloisters, your medievally themed outpost uptown. Around 350,000 of the show's visitors went to the cloisters, which is an attendance record for that branch of the museum. Do you think you could create that in the future? <laughs> well, for us, of course, audience maximization is not the, our prime goal, but I think it certainly set a standard of attention and also of, again, discovery for the Met cloisters that we certainly want to continue and uh, find other programming that does uh, has similar effects from, from time to time. Um, I think Heavenly Bodies at the Met Crisis was something really special because to a certain extent Heavenly Bodies as an exhibition had a beautiful scenography in itself but of course uh, the cloisters uh, are almost like a perfect place uh, to show Heavenly Bodies, uh, to show uh, costumes, fashion design that's that's inspired by a certain uh, Christian uh, idioms. So in, in a sense, uh, I think we found a perfect fit there. And of course, on the other hand, something fairly unusual uh, for the cloisters. So that's part of the, maybe also of the chemistry and the attraction. Would we be doing this now every four months? I think it would lose some of, the, some of its effects. Uh, but I think you will, uh, you will see um, programming that will activate also the cloisters in a different way uh, more, uh, more in the future than we've seen in, uh, already in the past. Are there any shows in particular you'd like to mention that are in the works? I, I don't want to announce anything yet, but I think uh, you, you have seen well, the success of Henley Bodies. I can also remember coming as a visitor to the cloisters and seeing the wonderful installation of Janet Cardiff, uh, uh, the, uh, really a, a sound installation that really uh, almost like embraced the entire uh, space. So um, from time to time, I think uh, also the cloisters can uh, have a very contemporary viewpoint, a contemporary perspective on what this institution is also about and what the cloisters also represent. And uh, there are certainly ways to, to amplify that, be that with artistic collaborations or with particular thematic exhibitions that uh, basically uh, further galvanize uh, that particular point. Well, your Michelangelo show was another crowd pleaser with people jammed into the galleries. Also, there were Instagramable moments like the Sistine Chapel ceiling that was reproduced. How do you explain the appeal for a general audience? Michelangelo was, of course, very special because it, what happened there was you had an audience that was completely mesmerized by an exhibition, but in essence, it also was an exhibition that required you to look very carefully and deeply at the work. I mean, almost like want to remind you that these, uh, these were really delicate drawings, uh, works on paper. Uh, uh, so it was a show, of course, with Michelangelo, uh, an artist who's, 
whose name resonates well with a, with a, with a broader audience, but an audience, uh, you don't see that many works by Michelangelo um, if you're not in, uh, in Rome. Uh, so uh, I think it was a discovery for many and a very focused uh, exhibition in the sense that it's really, uh, while it ha covered all media, it was really, of course, focused on Michelangelo's great drawings. For an audience, it was a moment to uh, understand this is probably a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to see uh, these really masterpieces, these, uh, these drawings, these very, very precious loans all assembled in one place. It took us, of course, about 10 years to put the show together. And that's not so much the, the work on just, I don't know, the concept or the installation. It's obviously uh, 10 years of work convincing the lenders uh, to share some of these really precious uh, and very delicate works uh, with, a, with a broad audience. And to a certain extent, we feel these are exhibitions that, to, well, probably sometimes only the Met can do. And if we do them, we have, we, have, we have an obligation, not only to do them right, but to share it with as many people as we can. Your curator told us that guards at the Met were eager to take part in the show, to staff it. I, I, I would say that there is enormous pride uh, for everyone who works at the Met uh, for what this institution does. Um, and especially when there are exhibitions that so, uh, so to say, almost like set people's imagination on fire, uh, that pride even is, is even stronger. So I, I'm, I'm very pleased to hear that. And I, uh, I think also Carmen Bambach, the curator, is also someone who is, can be very convincing and very, uh, very excited about her, her project. So I think the enthusiasm that also she um, shows for, for her, her work is something that really uh, resonates so well with the whole uh, way of how we all work here in this institution. And that kind of is from the guards to the director's office. Yeah. Uh, last year, the Met introduced a new policy on admission fees, mm -hmm. charging adults from outside New York State a full $25 rather than allowing them to pay what they wished. Um, how has that affected visitor numbers for the museum overall? We haven't seen any negative effect on it, quite the opposite. Uh, Last year uh, was our best attended year ever, so I think uh, our visitorship is actually uh, continues to increase, um, and it's uh, something where clearly the institution has an enormous uh, offering uh, for for ticket price on on that level for for people coming to visit uh, New York. Um, the two shows that we we are talking about, Michelangelo and Heavenly Bodies, were sometimes even overlapping, and so and it's experiencing these exhibitions as well as the whole uh, Met with its different uh, collections. I would say that our audience numbers and the, also the diversity of our audience show uh, that uh, the Met's program uh, is being embraced wholeheartedly and also that the pricing uh, um, system is something that we, uh, we feel not only comfortable with but it's, it's something that also our audience uh, fully accepts and sees also as a really... Uh, great, great offer, actually, for, for what, we have, what we present here at this institution. Uh, to what extent do potential visitor numbers figure into the museum's decision-making on future shows? I would say the Met has a very diverse program, and we do about 40 exhibitions a year. Um, none of these shows are being driven by... Uh, like the, the reason why they come into existence is not 
audience uh, projections or trying to make sure that we get as many people into into uh, you know, into the museum. Um, but on the other hand, we obviously know that there are certain exhibitions, certain exhibition ideas, certain uh, certain concepts that will resonate more with a broader audience, whereas some some uh, will have almost like a more more specialized audience. Uh, it's one of the strengths of the Met that uh, we have this and we can produce this diversity of offerings. But on the other hand, that we are not really dependent on the audience numbers uh, for our special exhibitions in regard to our, our total attendance. So your goal isn't to surpass this coup that you had last year? No, I think our, our continuous coup is being the Met uh, and being a great institution that cares so much about all of its collections, its scholarly approach and also its narratives and its storytelling. And that will continue to materialize itself in many different uh, incarnations, many different programs, projects, exhibitions, performances, uh, publications, etc. Um, so also I as a director, um, I don't see it as, uh, as of, like we are a mission-driven institution uh, and our mission is to best serve our audience. Uh, but serving our audience means actually doing it in multiple and very different ways uh, and it's not uh, just geared uh, towards uh, audience maximization at any uh, point in time. Well, thank you, Max. Yeah, yeah, sure, thank you. Now, for more than a decade, the art newspaper's Emily Sharp has led a small team who gather the visitor figures over many months and attempted to identify what they tell us about trends in attendance. Emily is with me now. Emily, we've heard all about the Mets triumph, so tell us about what the other big figures are. Well, the the Smithsonian American Art Museum sort of helped the U.S. pull out a hat trick with having the third most popular show in our in our survey with uh, Doho's uh, um, exhibition of his big, immersive uh, fabric sculptures, um, and that was seen by nearly 1.1 million people, and it also topped our contemporary art category. Um, so very good for DC. It shows how uh, people are attracted to an event, an experience. We talk, we've talked a lot on this podcast, actually, and we've talked a lot in the attendance survey every year of this event culture, this idea of um, people going to have an experience. And actually all of the three exhibitions, those first three exhibitions, speak to that, don't they? They're very different kinds of experiences, but all very much experiences that want to be recorded and transmitted over social media and all that. I think one of the takeaways from last year is that if you want people to come to an exhibition, don't call it an exhibition, call it an experience. Because they're looking for more. These exhibitions, that are they're not traditional uh, exhibitions per se, are the ones that people are really, really interested in. That's interesting, isn't it? Because the... the the Michelangelo show is, on the one hand, it's 200 drawings, an, an exceptional opportunity to see 200 drawings, but the 200 drawings are difficult to record on your phone and transmit. But, of course, there's this bit at the end, this interactive bit, where there's a, where there's a Sistine Chapel recreation. It speaks to, again, different ways of um, creating new kind of experiences from historic art as well, doesn't it? Yes. I mean, it, it's just having that, that little addition at the end um, that just will will keep people there a little bit longer. It'll offer something slightly different. Um, you know, social media obviously is becoming uh, a huge way that people are 
recording their experiences of, of museum going and exhibition going. And, you know, very happy to to share these experiences. If you cater to that, you can get huge numbers. I was really intrigued. I mean, Chinese museums feature very visibly in the survey, as, as they always do. They are huge exhibitions. They can cope with vast numbers of people. One of the really interesting things I thought was that a Chinese exhibition at, in Shanghai of Tate Britain works uh, attracted an enormous number of people, more than 600,000 people, more than 7,000 people a day. Tate Britain attracts 1.2 million people a year. And so half the number of people that visit Tate Britain in a year went in three months in this Shanghai museum. And it makes me think... It's really it, it really makes you think about collections and about how, in a way, they're these underappreciated resources in our own countries and suddenly become blockbuster exhibitions in other parts of the world. Yeah, I mean, the, the Shanghai show of the Tate's collection, I think they were landscapes. And that might be something, you know, we're used to seeing, you know, you just go across the river to Tate Britain and you see you know, a whole bunch of landscapes, British landscapes. But for, a, a, you know, an audience, a Chinese audience, that's that's a new experience. Um, so that was their, I mean, that's Tate Britain's most successful show ever. And you had to go, you know, thousands of kilometers away to see it. <laughs> that's right, because Tate Britain has never had uh, 600,000 plus people ever see an exhibition. I think their biggest exhibition, I think, was David Hockney yes. in uh a couple of years ago, for yes, instance, yeah. that was their. I believe that was their most their most popular exhibition. What What other shows drew lots of people? Well, I think um, obviously the Louvre, the Delacroix show was uh, their best, uh, most popular exhibition that they've ever had in their history. Um, it was also their most successful year ever. Um, Ten point two million people. Um, that particular show had. Uh, 540,000. Um, It beat their earlier old master shows that they had had, a Leonardo show a few years ago, several years ago. Um, But it'll be interesting to see with the latest Leonardo show. uh, That's coming coming up this October. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. see if if that, whether it has the Salvatore Mundi or not, how many people that's going to, if it can top over last year. But, um, But interestingly, the Louvre credits their record attendance with the Delacroix. The, um, an upswing in tourism following the uh, 2015 terrorist attacks. People are starting to come back. Foreign tourists are coming back. And also um, the Beyonce effect because um, Ape Shit, the video Ape Shit, which um, I've seen, um, is <laughs> it was filmed in uh, the Louvre. And um, the people just were curious after, you know, they, they're pictured standing in front of, you know, the Mona Lisa or Winged Victory. Um, and people were curious to then go check out the museum. It's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, museums are often criticised, historic museums are often criticised for pandering too much to contemporary taste. And uh, But it does go to, I mean, the Louvre is directly saying we have 10.2 million visitors because of old art plus new stuff. You know, it's 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 palpable evidence that creative programming in museums and creative associations that museums can strike up actually bring in more people. And I, yeah, I don't think it, it's not going to diminish the Louvre's reputation. People are still going to go to the Louvre. The collection is phenomenal. But it's just that little added kind of, I guess, bonus um, of being able to say, I stood where Beyonce stood or, <laughs> or something like that, you know. Um, what, what other uh, highlights are there in the sort of uh, 
general attendance to museums? I think, um, obviously, with the Heavenly Bodies, we saw uh, fashion. Fashion is very big. Um, in, in the last few years, we've seen that fashion shows are... Uh, fashion exhibitions, I should say, are really very popular with the public. Um, so, of course, Heavenly, all the, the Mets, their Costume Institute shows always do very, very well. I mean, obviously, Heavenly Bodies was unheard of in terms of their figures, but it beat their um, King Tut show uh, the, when um, the Mona Lisa had a whistle-stop tour of the U.S. back in the 60s. Um, but we see shows, for example, like the Frida Kahlo in London, which was more than a fashion show. I mean, it did have her, her, um, some of her garments, but it also had, uh, personal effects, you know, photographs. That was, um, that was at the V&A. That was at the V&A. Sorry. That was the V&A's most popular show. Yeah. Um, in 2018, um, MoMA had its first fashion show since 1940s. Um, and it, it looked at, uh, sort of staples, fashion staples, like the little back dress or Levi's jeans. That was its most popular show. One thing we haven't got in this year's survey is the Dior show at the V&A, which, uh, because it began last year, but it continued into this year, and in fact has been extended because it sold out, it seems like another fashion show will do very well in next year's survey. I would imagine that is going to be possibly their biggest show. The Mets Camp show that opens in May. That is also going to be huge. And then you've got other museums that are, um, you know, even it was announced right when we were writing the uh, the analysis that the Wallace Collection was was putting on a Manola Blahnik show, um, that they had just an- announced that for 2019. So it's not something you would expect at the Wallace. It's something different, but it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Indeed. And what about, um, uh, so the the Louvre is the most popular museum in the world. What's the rest of the top 10 looking like? Well, the National Museum of China is uh, number two, as it was last year, 8.6 million. Um, it's a fairly new entry into our survey. It appeared in our 2017 survey for the first time. Uh, the Met, again, takes third. Vatican is fourth. It gets a little bit interesting when you get down to the fifth and sixth because we've seen Tate Modern and the British Museum switch places. Um, the... It, the Tate Modern had nearly 5.9 million people. Um, British Museum had about 5.82. So the Tate has now become the UK's most visited museum. It's about we're talking about 49,000, 50,000 more visitors, but it, it's telling. I think it's still feeling the effects of the of its expansion, Switch House opening. Um, the Picasso show was incredibly popular. Again, a very um, widely Instagrammed uh, show, great Indeed. show. Um, and also, I think, you know, the Tate's, the, the Tanks performances. Yes, exactly. I mean, it, it's very possible, I think, that the British Museum and Tate Modern will swap back round yes. next year. I mean, it's possibly. a very small, it's, it, in, in relative terms, it's a very small number of people that, that's the difference. And, and a blockbuster like Picasso happens, you know, that of that scale really mm. happens once every few years perhaps Mm. so I'm wondering if actually it's a sort of short-term effect but still I mean these are extraordinary figures aren't they I can remember you know when Tate Modern when it was talked about founding Tate Modern they were talking about 2.5 million visitors and we're talking 5.9 yeah this is extraordinary they've blown that away yeah they have I mean it is it's it's amazing and I I do think that the BM and Tate will probably flip-flop and if if the British Museum you know 
has another blockbuster like a, a Pompeii show or what was the one they had a few years ago, The Sunken Egypt. If they have another one of those, I think that they could possibly, you know, it could flip again. But it's interesting to see that the time that we have been collecting overall uh, total museum attendance figures, we've not seen that before. And there were some other quite interesting developments in UK attendances as well, weren't there? Yes, the RA had a record year. Uh, it's 250th anniversary. Anniversaries always help boost attendance figures. We saw that with the Byler in 2017 and Guggenheim Bilbao. Um, so in its 250th anniversary, it opened its David Chipperfield expansion, greatly increasing the size of, of um, uh, areas to, to show works. Uh, it also had the summer exhibition, which is always very popular. It was his most successful summer exhibition ever, curated by um, Grayson Perry. Uh, it had 296,000 people, which is 100,000 more than it had in uh, 2017 to yeah. go to the summer exhibition. It was timed very well with the opening of the of the ex- of the extension, so that was sort of. It felt like it was. It, I mean, we talked about it at the time, but it 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 shows that the Royal Academy has become something much more like a museum. And, oh yeah, and therefore people are just turning up like they would to a museum rather than making a special effort to go to see a, uh, an exhibition, which it was a what we call a Kunsthalle, an exhibition space before, and now it feels much more like a museum. Yeah, I mean, it, now it has the space to be able to do that. And yeah, people are treating it that way. Yeah, and the V&A had good figures as well, didn't it? The V&A had very good figures. It was a record year for the V&A, um, no doubt. I mean, it, it set a record in 2017, Right, and it broke that record again in 2018. Um, no doubt helped by uh, the Frida Kahlo show. Um, strangely, the Winnie the Pooh show was quite popular. It actually was more popular per day than the Balenciaga, which sort of blows that theory about fashion shows. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but that's per day figures we're talking, um, yeah. and it is Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> um, but yes, so the V&A had about 178,000 more people. Great. Now, one of the things that uh, happens when we talk about attendance figures is that people question what they mean in terms of success factors. Of course, it is one only one side of museum success. Mm. We go to town on it. We make sure that people understand the context. And in fact, Nicholas Cullen and the director of the National Portrait Gallery has written a very good uh, comment piece in the current issue of the art newspaper in which he talks about this issue and, and how attendance is only one measure of success. Mm. I think we should point out that the art newspaper has never claimed that visitor figures are the only metric that should be used for measuring whether or not a museum is, is, is successful at reaching a wide audience. Um, but it is, they are important. I don't think you can dismiss them. And he was very, you know, he made a valid point by arguing that you should you should look at other factors. You should, like, online engagement, um, which now museums are putting their online engagement figures in their press releases is something they've not done in the past. Um, demographics, whether or not, you know, your programming is bringing in a different segment of the population than than you would traditionally expect. And, you know, how their program is fulfilling their commitment to scholarly research or addressing the issue of gender imbalance. So while it's a thoroughly riveting read, our attendance survey, we're saying it is not the be all and end all. Emily, thank you very much. Thank you. You can read Art's Most Popular, the Art Newspaper's attendance survey and a wealth of comment analysis in the April edition of the Art Newspaper. 
And that's it for this week's podcast. Please subscribe if you haven't already, and if you're enjoying listening to us, please give us a rating or review on iTunes as it helps others to find us. You can follow us and tell us what you think on Twitter, at Tan Audio, and you can find the art newspaper on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, of course. If you'd like to read more from the art newspaper, please subscribe to our free daily newsletter. It contains a roundup of the stories on our website, previews of shows across the world, and live reports from art fairs, biennales and auctions. You can subscribe by visiting theartnewspaper.com and clicking on the newsletter link at the top right of the page. The producers of the Art Newspaper podcast are Julia Mahowska, Amy Dawson and David Clack, and David also does the editing. Thanks to Martin, to Nancy and Max and to Emily, and thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. We might be talking about Brexit if we get any closer to knowing what the hell is going on. See you then. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com now.